Welcome to part two of our interview with Dr. Nichols on her theory of comfort. Well, and what I love about your theory, Tara, is that you utilize physiological theory, you utilize caring theories, you utilize organizational theory, and the integration of that from a scientific standpoint creates the underpinning for a really powerful model. Now, as I was listening to you and working with you to refine your Nichols-Nelson model of comfort, I was struck by the patient is not only dealing with the physiological pain, but there is the internal predictors, we call them, that are like the fear and the anxiety, the uncertainty, all those different things uh, that are actually potentiating or increasing that pain. So I want to start uh, start talking about the impact of the provider because what they believe they act upon. So talk a little bit about the impact of fear and what's going on physiologically to potentiate or modulate that pain. So part of the physiology of comfort is transduction, transmission, yeah. perception, and then descending modulation. Because you perceive, then your body can start to modulate what it wants to take in and what it wants to put out. So because pain goes to four different parts of your brain, one being your amygdala and that reward center, your, your emotional center, when a person is experiencing fear, externally, what they see and hear is reinforcing that fear. The modulation can be towards wanting to potentiate what they're feeling because they feel like I can't, just like I was explaining, I can't let that go. I can't let this pain go because they're all saying it's not real. So now in my body, I need to manifest. I need to moan. I need to rock. I need to make sure these people know I am in pain because if I just sit here and be calm, they may think I'm not in pain because I can hear them and I can see and I can sense. So this clinician-patient relationship is so critical. It's so critical because it's going to reinforce in me. Now, what do I think pain behavior looks like? Because obviously I'm not acting like I'm in pain. And I mean, at one point when I went in the ER, I was on the floor. I was howling and screaming. I was just acting like a crazy person because I just had to make sure that they know. Now, if a patient can partner with a clinician and say, you know, hey, right at this moment, I feel like my pain is like a four or five. I'm able to tolerate it but I am really scared that this pain is going to come back. What are we going to do to make sure that doesn't happen? That's a different approach. Another outcome that you see in the, cl in the clinical area is patients who say 8, 9, 10, 8, 9, 10. You're giving them Dilaudid. You're giving them, you know, Oxycodone. You're giving them Norco. You're giving them all these medications, but it's still 8, 9, and 10. And one of the things I would do when I would go up to get to see patients, because I would be consulted, 
is I would go in and I would sit down and say, you know, I really, I know you're in a lot of pain. I know you're in a lot of pain. You have this, you have this, you have this, you have all these reasons. But what I'm concerned about is we're giving you an awful lot of medication. Medication does affect different people differently. But if this medicine doesn't help you, we're going to have to stop it and do something else because it's not helping you. So we're going to give you another dose. I'm going to give you an hour and we'll come back and see if that helps. Because if it doesn't, I need to call the doctor and get this changed or do something different. And what does that care planning and informing the patient do for that patient? So one, it, it, you have to reinforce to the patient, even if this helps you, we're not going to take it away. Because remember, I kept saying those high scores because I didn't think that anybody was going to do anything. And so part of what's happening is people is holding on to that this is how I get what I think I need. Until you can build trust by saying you're going to get your medication. And usually when I do that, then when I come back, their, their pain score is a seven or six, when they've been saying eight, nine, tens all the way across for two days. So now they're starting to trust. And then what I say now, you can't take it away right now. What you have to do is go in and say, okay, now that that's working, we're going to add some other things. And then you have to let them get to the point and say, maybe in 24 hours, we're going to cut this dose in half. Or maybe in 24 hours, instead of you getting it every four hours, now we're going to give it to you every eight hours because we're gonna add some other things on. But those that is all a part of shared decision-making, building trust, allowing the patient to be a part of the plan of care and allowing the patient to have some control, but most importantly, allowing the patient to, to see that you believe their pain, you believe what is going on with it. Right. and. The, I mean, there's so many things I love about your theory. Like, for example, you have the seven dimensions of comfort, but there are certain things that you want them to have more of, mm -hmm. and you want things to have less of. Like, you want more trust, mm -hmm. but you want less fear. Yes. So, having the different aspects or dimensions that impact pain positively and negatively. I think that's really masterful because it helps the nurse or the clinician be clear on how to increase comfort and decrease pain. And I think the one thing I like to say is increase the patient's mindset for this to occur because it's the mindset, the perception, because we have to remember pain is a perception. And so we want to put patients in the best possible mindset for all of these internal predictors of worry and bitterness and loneliness to not exacerbate what's already a stressful state. Because one of the founding principles of my theory is people can find comfort in a painful episode. So we're not talking about taking people's pain to zero. What we're talking about is coping, reasonable acceptance, 
of what they might experience. And the other thing that we don't really touch on is that there is a benefit to pain. Pain is good. People who do not experience pain have a short life. It is miserable. It's usually in children. Some people who have closed head injuries uh, have that uh, uh, problem where they don't experience pain. Pain is a warning signal. It's a normal physiological response, just like breathing is a normal physiological response. And without that, we're really in a deficit. And so it's not the pain that I want to focus on. It's the elevation of the comfort. So in that modulation, so after you perceive pain, then it's modulated. What I want to do is to infuse the patient with so many comforting stimuli, the clinician-patient relationship, the environment, music, massage, acupuncture, mindfulness, positive thoughts, that the modulation of comfort becomes overwhelming to the brain that it doesn't want to focus on the pain because it wants to focus on all of these comforting sensations that are coming into the brain. And it can choose, the brain can choose what it wants to pay attention to. So we really want to put patients in the best possible mindset. And this whole concept and a lot of the research that I have been reading has led me to start writing the physiology of comfort because I feel like the physiology of pain is incomplete because it's not about pain, no pain, because I just told you no pain is another illness. To me, I think is the opposite of pain is comfort. And so if we have a physiology of comfort, of, of pain, then we should also have a physiology of comfort. And one study that I read that kind of led me to this was a group of physiologists was working with pain patients and they showed them varying degrees of negative faces from happy to like really angry and mad. The more negative the facial expression then they would ask them, what is their pain score? The higher they rated their pain. So now you take that research finding and you apply that to the clinical setting and you apply that to healthcare professionals who are negative, who are mean, who are dismissive. And you ask patients what their pain score, what's your pain score? They don't believe you, believe them. So they're going to say higher than what it is. So now you reverse that story to a healthcare clinician who is comforting, who has the courage to be there with the patient, who is not judgmental, who says, you know, Dr. Nelson, I just gave you your pain medication. It may take a little while for it to work, but why don't I give you a hand massage? Or why don't we let you listen to some music? What kind of music do you like to listen to? All of these things will help bring the patient's anxiety down, help the patient believe that, hey, they, they understand I'm in pain. And patients understand they got to wait till the medication worked. And the whole thing about my theory is it takes a combination of different treatments so that we are impacting each part of the brain 
where pain sits. So we can put patients in that best possible mindset for comfort to occur. Oh, that's wonderful, Tara. I just love that. I just love listening to you talk about your theory of comfort. So thank you for that, Tara. I think all of us can relate in our own experience to many of the things that you have stated. I know in my own experience, I had a, a really horrible experience with a seizure and lost half of the function of my heart. And boy, I can relate to so many of the things that you are stating in uh, having some staff believe you and some staff not believe you. And boy, that is just a night and day difference in the experience. So this is really good. Now, I do want to talk to you a little bit about the context of where comfort management or pain management is occurring. And that has to do with the clarity of the staff. Do they really understand these concepts that you're talking about? Do they work within an organization that, like relationship-based care, where they understand that concepts of caring, concepts of partnering, all these things that you're talking about in the comfort theory that are consistent with relationship-based care, and you actually use relationship-based care as you assert that that's very important. But talk a little bit about the context of the organization to make sure that comfort and pain management are a good outcome for the patient. So first, I wanted to go back and talk about your hospital experience, which is really interesting because I believe my theory can be applied to other phenomenons and not just pain. Because like you said, that the concept of not being believed is very powerful and it can impact your healing. So down the road, we'll be talking about that, I'm sure, and writing about that, the, how the theory can be adapted to other things. As far as the context of system and the application of using comfort, I'm starting to see more and more the concept of comfort come up because I believe this phenomenon that we call pain is just way too linear. But what, what begins to happen is there's a mismatch in people wanting you to use this broader perspective, but then allowing you the resources and tools to use this perspective. So one thing that needs to be in place from a system perspective is an interprofessional team. And one of the things that I talked about in my last roles was three concepts. How do we increase people's comfort, improve their functioning, and maximize their safety? So function, comfort, safety. A system has to allow the interprofessional team to understand their role in each of those three domains as it relates to pain. Well, let's take the nurse, okay? They're at the point of care. If they're calling physicians, if they're calling other providers or other healthcare professionals and they don't feel that anyone is stepping into the circle of ownership with them around this issue, then they're gonna just divert back to what they feel like they have, which is going to the MAR and giving the pain medication because all of these things take time and they obviously can't do them all. And then the organization have to think about what are those additional disciplines that we need to bring into the healthcare arena 
and provide in the community. And then there's insurance. Okay, so 80% of people who experience pain is not in the hospital. They're in the community. They probably never even go to the hospital. They might have only been being managed by their primary care doctor. And we all know in the primary care setting, the average, I mean, you know, the last time you went to the doctor, how long did you spend with your physician? 10 minutes, 15 minutes? You know, right. if it wasn't an initial appointment for a first time patient, you probably got 10 minutes. So as we start to look at the system, we have to look at workflow. We have to look at referrals. We have to look at how do we come together in the interprofessional team and have these discussions, not just about pain, but the whole patient. What's all going on with this patient that is feeding into this pain? I was reading um, some articles this weekend and it was saying depression is the number one comorbidity with chronic pain. So are we screening everyone for depression when they have chronic pain, especially if they have lower back pain? Are we screening everyone to look at that? And then when we screen patients, because that's what I always say as a nurse, okay, I screen the patient. I say, yeah, they're at risk for depression. Then what happens with that information? Does it just sit in the chart? Are they actually referred to a psychiatrist, a psychologist, or is a primary care doctor? You know, at least talk to them about getting on an antidepressant. So the system has to have the resources and the tools to respond to this broader, holistic point of care. And I feel like a lot of times that's why clinicians revert to just prescribing medications and giving medications because it's easy, it's available. It doesn't require for me to put in another referral. I don't have to worry about is the patient going to be able to cover it. And then the other piece is the expectations of the patient. So as a patient, if I'm expecting to get some Norco, then I want Norco because you as a doctor or a healthcare professional haven't explained to me that there's this holistic approach to pain management that actually will work better because acute pain usually is a result of injury or something that we can put our finger on. Okay. You had a surgery, you fell, you broke your arm, you burned yourself. There's something going on. You're having a baby, you know, while you're having pain. But then when you get into chronic pain, it may or may not be an identifiable reason while you're having this chronic pain. And then if you continue to ruminate on that, that all exacerbates what's going on. So there's a cute little video on the internet called Understanding Pain in Five Minutes. And it really goes through just all of the different reasons why a more holistic approach building patients' expectations, how the system needs to work with that so that you can use this approach and understand the clarity in role and the clarity in system. And the other piece, the most important piece is the clinician-patient relationship. And we do not teach clinicians therapeutic skills. Clinicians have to understand that when they show up, how they show up, their energy, their beliefs about what is going on and what is their role. And I've had a lot of physicians say to me, 
I don't even understand a lot of these non-medicine choices. I don't know the literature on them. How can I advise them? I said, well, first of all, there's just like hundreds and thousands of articles. You know, there's systematic reviews, but you can say, you know, it's probably 50-50. Half of the people it help, half of the people it doesn't help. Let's see if it helps you. Right. Patients can, if I'm at the point where I'm having so much pain and I'm uncomfortable and somebody tells me this is a 50-50 chance, I'll take it. It's better than nothing. You know what I'm saying? And I've seen the most powerful results with people when they engaged in looking at the right combination of, of pain treatments with acupuncture, with mindfulness, with prayer, with progressive muscle relaxation, just so many different things that, that they never even realized could help them. So I think that when you start to talk about role clarity and the system, that has to come together from the context of the interprofessional team stepping into the circle of ownership and the system providing the resources and starting to expand those resources, whether they're inpatient or outpatient. Right. So what we've reviewed so far is how we took your expertise in understanding about pain and comfort. We developed a model to communicate that complex theory in an elegant model. But the last thing we needed to do together was we needed to create an instrument that would measure what the staff were learning in comfort management utilizing this theory. So you and I developed an instrument that is intended for the care provider so they can report on their beliefs about providing pain management and comfort and utilizing your theory. And we also developed an instrument for the patient looking at those outcomes that we propose are important within your theory. Because if you're, if the staff are learning these behaviors, they're going to begin to evolve within this theoretical framework. And we want to make sure we capture that to show that this indeed does improve those things that you state the patient experience, the level of comfort, the level of pain, their functionality, all those different things that your theory proposes impacts outcomes. Just talk a little bit about your experience in developing those measures, which are in our book, actually. We have it in the appendix, but in the chapter that you've written about comfort, these measures are provided in the book. So talk a little bit about that experience in developing measures for your theory. So what we did, which was really interesting, was to look at all the different things that can be measured by the theory and how would it be measured. So in predictive modeling, that would be your measurement uh, model. And for most of the elements in the theory, we found measurements, we found tools to measure it. But what was really interesting is when we looked at the therapeutic skills and we looked at the staff's belief and then the components of internal predictors for the person in pain, we realized we didn't really have a good tool that would help us. So we had to make two tools, one for the patient that looks at those internal predictors and their relationship with the clinician 
and then one for the clinician that looks at their belief system around comfort and around therapeutic skills. So with all of the different tools, you could easily adapt the model, pull the tools you want, and come up with a predictive model for anyone's particular organization. You could measure all the different elements. You could pick certain things to measure. You could compare care delivery locations, see what differences you come up with so that you could determine how would I how would my intervention for the ED be different from my intervention for labor and delivery? And I think that's one of the things that we do in healthcare is like a one size fit all. And anybody who ever tried to put something on as one size fit all realize it don't fit me. And so um, we have to learn to adapt these different tools to be able to consider what is different for locations, for departments for individuals, and most importantly, we have only studied, managed, researched pain from the perspective of the patient. I am just now starting to see descriptive studies that are looking at the clinician's impact on pain. We have to start studying the clinician-patient role as a part of pain, and we also have to start studying the impact of the clinician. Those are two different things that we have to really start to look at. So when you start to look at the measurement aspect of this, now you can actually start to target interventions to improve patient experience scores or to improve just the likelihood that a patient would even recommend you for managing their pain or to improve the staff activation as it surrounds resiliency. Staff have to feel that their efforts, that healthcare professionals don't mind working with complex pain patients. Where they get burnt out is when they can't see their results end up in patients being able to advance. So they can't activate their resiliency because they never see any really good results from people who have chronic pain. And working with a interprofessional team in my doctoral work, I saw that activation with that physician, pharmacist, and social worker that worked with me because we worked with 34 chronic pain patients and we started to see results. We started to see chronic pain patients coming in and saying, well, you know, I'm really not using all those Norco because they trusted the physician not to take their medication away. And then the physician would say, okay, well, just go another month and let's see what happens. And then after two months, they would be like, yeah, I'm still not using all those pills. I think I should go down. And the patient was recommending that they come down because they had built those trusting relationships. They were part of the plan of care. They had no longer had any fear that their medication was going to be taken away. They were starting to have an increased well-being because They were not taking so much of the opioids. They were doing other things. They were activating their power to self-care and self-manage. So I think that's where it all starts to come together. No, I think that's a great point in measurement is that if you're utilizing predictive analytics, which has many different predictors for the outcome, 
that it allows you to see which aspect of what is being done is impacting that outcome the most. So I think that's, and that includes self-care, that includes their beliefs and behaviors. Um, so I think that's a really good point. So Tara, for the benefit of our audience, how could someone get a hold of you if they wanted to talk with you more about your theory of comfort? I can be reached at tara.nichols, so T-A-R-A dot N-I-C-H-O-L-S at Waldorf edu, and you spell Waldorf, W-A-L-D-O-R-F. Great. Okay, well, thank you so much, Tara, for spending this time with us and reviewing your important theory with us and explaining to everyone how important it is, as stated by Dr. Zane Wolf in our previous episode, how important it is for doctors of nursing practice and PhD nurses to work together to make sure that they're taking the best of the clinical content and putting that into science so that it becomes visible empirically and therefore it can be refined operationally. So thank you so much for your expertise and your time. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode today. We certainly enjoyed Dr. Nichols in her review of her theory of comfort, and it certainly was a delight for me to work with her to make that visible empirically and to advance the science on comfort. So we trust that you will visit our Caring Science website so you can view all of the episodes that we have recorded. Thank you.